All right, we are live. ESG standards and sustainability goals are wreaking havoc in the agricultural sectors. Farmer protests are starting in countries around the world. And also, are we turning a corner towards energy and education sanity in this country? We're going to be talking about this and more in episode 353 of the In the Tank podcast. Welcome to the In the Tank podcast. As always, I am your host, Donald Kendall. And joining me today, I've got Jim Lakely, VP of the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today, good sir? Uh, I'm doing okay. I'm not as in good a mood as I was last week after all those great uh, Supreme Court decisions. So I'm back to my usual grumpy mood. Uh, and it's because, look, the topics we have today are depressing. I mean, ESG is wreaking havoc on the world. It stinks. That's a good point. That's a good point. There are some good topics. We got some good ones to cap off the episode with. So uh, okay, we'll get All to right. that. Maybe we can get your, uh, you know, uh, your mood up towards the end of the end of the episode. Also I'll joining try- us. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> Chris Talgo, senior editor at the Heartland Institute. How are you today? Good, sir. Well, I think I'm not in as bad a mood as Jim. So I think that might be a good thing. <laughs> yeah, well, that's just that's just normal. So uh, before we get going, we do have a lot to talk about. But before we get going, I do want to put that message out there that I start every episode with, which generally goes out to our audio-only listeners, which is 99.9% of our audience, who is probably catching this episode on a Friday or sometime over the weekend. You can join us a day earlier on Thursdays at noon Central Time for the live version of the show, streaming on YouTube and Rumble and Facebook and Twitter and all those different places where you could join in the conversation, put in your comments and and, uh, and questions, maybe. Maybe we'll show your comment on the screen. Maybe we'll address your question on the fly. And also, to ensure that you don't miss an episode, make sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel In The Tank Podcast. We created a separate channel just for this show. Because after a couple of controversial episodes, we're talking about things that Google and YouTube didn't want us to talk about. They threatened to destroy our entire channel. So in an effort to not self-censor ourselves, we'll ge- we'll we generally uh, stream on both channels. But if there's something that might be a little controversial, we'll only do it on the In the Tank podcast channel. So in an effort to not self-censor ourselves, we have that separate channel. Anyways... Before we get going here, uh, I want to walk down memory lane a bit. So it was almost exactly one year ago today uh, that the Biden administration took the strangest victory lap ever when they made a big deal out of the fact that Americans were expected to pay less for their 4th of July cookout staples in 2021. 16 cents less, to be exact. So uh, let's let's. Put aside the point that, uh, you know, the White House chose to refer to the holiday as Fourth of July as opposed to Independence Day. But regardless, uh, conservatives types smirked and jeered the administration for celebrating such minuscule supposed savings, especially when the administration and the Fauci's of the world were trying to convince us to stay at home and not to celebrate with family and friends. But, uh, you know, things were just simpler back then. 
So now, one year later, the same basket of goods will cost Americans 17% or costed uh, 17% more. And if my math is correct, that means an additional $11.85 to buy all of your goods for your Independence Day cookout. So hopefully you invested that 11 cents in savings uh, last year to uh, in some type of investment that yielded you 11,000% increase in value. Uh, Jim, I don't suspect the White House was tweeting out the uh, the difference in price this year compared to last, like they did the previous year. No, no, they weren't. Not with you know with stupid uh, food puns in it as well. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I took my the, my 16 cents of savings last year and invested it in Bitcoin, and uh, it's not going great. So that didn't work out for me either. But you know, look, you know, you know, Fourth of July, I had hamburgers and hot dogs and, and potato salad, and you know, the, the usual uh, Independence Day meal. And you know, as I'm cooking it on the grill, I'm thinking, this is real meat. This is meat that comes from a cow. This is not meat that was made in a lab, which is what mm -hmm. Bill Gates wants us to all be eating soon. Or it's not a cricket burger, which is what our our betters in Europe, uh, you know, the climate cultists want us to to convert to. And I think there's actually some schools that are experimenting. I saw this the other day. So our, our our public schools, who are basically prisoners, captive, they are mandatory. They must go to school in public school, uh, and so they're they're experimenting on giving them uh, insect based protein what? instead of, uh -uh. instead of so, yep i saw that i read that the other day a couple of weeks ago so you know enjoy this i hope you know i'm going to remember to enjoy the last independence day we had it could be the last one where meat is even remotely affordable maybe all i'll be able to afford is a very heavily spiced cricket burger next year the way inflation's going these days oh geez let's so, yeah, i told you i was in a, i told you i was in a crappy mood <laughs> right from the top we we could go down that. I've done some research recently on the whole uh, World Economic Forum and their cricket agenda. So we could go down that road if you really wanted to. Maybe we'll save that for a future topic. Uh, Chris, how was your Fourth of July? I, I uh, in general, and I'm and I have a question about uh, the the conversations that were happening around the grill. How was it? Uh, it was kind of a strange Fourth of July for uh, those who do not know. There was a mass shooting. Uh, you know, 15, 20 minutes from where, you know, we're located and where I live. And I was actually playing golf that morning and I heard just dozens and dozens of sirens and saw helicopters up in the, in the sky. And my brother and I were playing and we're just wondering, you know, what's going on here. And obviously we found out. So, I mean, that was real sad. It just kind of put a damper on the whole mood. Um, it, it, uh, it also caused all the fireworks shows and all the uh, local parades to be canceled. But other than that, uh, we had a nice time, uh, you know, friends and family and uh, uh, some of our extended family got together, uh, you know, had a nice barbecue. Yes, everything was a lot more expensive. I uh, supplied the meat and I supplied the buns and I was pretty shocked when uh, I had to, you know, pay for those. Um, but overall, you know, we tried to make the best of it. And I, I feel very strongly that Independence Day is, you know, one of the premier holidays of the year. And it should be celebrated and we should be thankful for what our founding fathers did 246 years ago, putting their lives on the line so that we could live in uh, in freedom. So I, I, I try to make a big deal, you know, about Fourth of July and just, you know, try to really celebrate it. 
Uh, I'm curious if um, if the the conversations ever went towards just like the gas prices and general inflation, grocery prices, that type of thing. So I will I will say when we were uh, sitting down to eat, uh, my dad uh, he opened up like the conversation by just saying, "Hey, everybody, you know, uh, the country's been very divided the past couple of years," and he, you know, my dad's you know getting older; it's almost eighty. And he, uh, you know, just mentioned that, hey, you know, when I was growing up, there was much less division and we were more patriotic and all that kind of stuff. And I, I generally agreed with him. But then I also did say, hey, you know, let's keep in mind that there have been many uh, time periods in America where we were very divided, you know, from the Civil War, the Vietnam War, even right after the revolution, the uh, Federalists and Anti-Federalists, they did not get along whatsoever. So just trying to, like, you know, keep that in perspective. But also just trying to say, you know what, the bottom line is, you know, this day is about freedom and this day is about celebrating our freedom and just, you know, just trying to really, you know, get that message across. So I think the, we stayed from politics for the most part. Yes, you know, we did just get into some of that stuff. But to me, this was not the right time, especially given the, you well, know, the, yeah, the, the, the sadness of what happened earlier today and just, you know, right. it, it, well, it's about celebrating freedom. There's a million political things, conversations that could pop up, a million different topics and things in the news and all of that. But I, I ask that mostly because I feel like gas prices and the grocery prices and inflation, all of that almost transcends politics. Like you don't have to be political. You don't have to be watching CNN and Fox News on a daily basis to recognize those prices going up on a near daily basis. And it, it generally comes up. It's like, especially lately, you know, it's like uh, the the things that are just kind of the small talk when you run into somebody on the street. It's like the weather, like it always has been for the entirety of human civilization. <laughs> and then lately, gas prices. Jim, mm. did you uh, did you have any get together on, on Independence Day? And did that topic come up at all? Well, you, you made the mistake of presuming I have friends who would like to come over to my house uh, and enjoy Good my point. cooking. Good yeah, point. Still Question working remote. on that. Yeah, because we're still working on that. Maybe next year. I was always, I'm always waiting for next year for people to come up to my uh, July 4th cookout. Yeah. No, actually, back uh, when I lived in Southern California, when I had uh, I had a few friends out there. And uh, one of them is a guy named Ben Boychuk. He's uh, the managing editor, I believe is his title. At American Greatness, the uh, amgreatness.com, a fantastic website that I recommend to everybody. Uh, but he's one of my longtime friends, and and he is very patriotic. His, in fact, he decorated his house. It's all uh, all this patriotic like um, uh, like posters from the from World War II and earlier. You know, you plant your freedom garden, and these beautiful, uh, you know. Well, they were propaganda, but they were patriotic posters for America. He has those in his house. He had, you know, red, white, and blue and flag uh, <laughs> themed stuff in his house on a regular basis. And he came over to my house um, a few, you know, one year and brought with him some things for us to read out loud together as a group, like the parts of the Declaration of Independence mm -hmm. and parts of the letters between John Adams and Abigail Adams. And it um, it really moved me then. And I think, uh, you know, I didn't celebrate it like that this year. And I will. And I've done that actually with other friends. I've, you know, done readings or, you know, reminded people what this day is about. I think it is it is remarkable. And it's it's kind of sad. I don't know if you guys saw this on Twitter. Uh, I did. Maybe I should spend a little less time on Twitter. But it was a <laughs> it was a yeah, probably that might improve your mood. <laughs> yeah, that actually explains a lot. Uh, there was a picture of the actress Jessica Chastain. Uh, saying some of the effect, um, this is how I'm, I'm celebrating my Independence Day, you know, with without any reproductive rights. And she gave it the the two finger, the the one finger salute in both hands. And I'm not putting up the wrong finger because I don't want the algorithms to see it. But 
you know, and what's the irony there is that, you know, she's she's lamenting that we're not free, that Independence Day is now ruined because of the decisions by the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, so again, Chris, you said like how we're all so divided, you know, it's it's it, it, I, I don't think it's any worse. It's obviously not worse than the Civil War. We have a lot of divisions in this country. But, you know, what kind of bothers me is that, uh, you know, Trump is supposedly a divisive president. Um, he was a lot more popular than Joe Biden is right now. Um, and his America first agenda was about, well, it was as plain as it can be America first. His policies were actually obviously demonstrably better for domestic policy and international policy than anything Biden has done. He's basically ruined everything. But we're supposed to be united around that president, but not this, you know, the supposed tyrant Trump. I mean, I, I really do. I don't even think we'll ever get back to the days of of even during Ronald Reagan. You know, the left hated him. Uh, he was derided. He was mocked. But you know, America felt more like America then. People were actually proud. Uh, you know, the idea of being proud of your country. I, I, we were going to talk about this a couple of weeks ago, Donnie, I know. And there was a there's a video going around of uh, I think it was from Campus Reform. They go on to a college campus and they ask, you know, kids in their in their late teens, early 20s, if they're patriotic, if they're proud of America. And they had a hard time finding young people say that they're proud of America. And it's just sad. Uh, because this oh. is still the greatest country in the world. It's the greatest system of government ever devised by human beings, and we're we're watching it. We're watching it slip away. It's, hey, it's it is well, sad. Yeah. On, on that note, according to a uh, a recent poll, only thirty eight percent of Americans are proud to be Americans, and I, I agree with Jim that the extremely proud. Let's well, not yeah. be fake news. Extremely oh, oh, proud. Excuse me. <laughs> and, but no, but I, I generally agree with Jim that the, the sentiment across the nation is definitely not what it was when I was growing up in terms of like pride in America. And, you know, just just here's another anecdotal example of that. NPR this year did not uh, uh, recite the Declaration of Independence, which they've done every single other year going back as, you know, as far along as I can remember. So that just goes to show, you know, this this whole CRT thing, this whole you know, anti-founding fathers, anti-constitution, anti—you know—revolution. Uh, you know, uh, uh, mindset has you know it's—it's it, it's definitely gotten old, and it's—it's it, it's increased in my, in my you know, thirty-nine years uh, here in America. I've seen it. Yeah, well, we do have a poll that's in the works right now uh, with Rasmussen that's going to tackle some of these issues. So hopefully we get results in the next couple of weeks. But uh, we'll, have, well, maybe we'll dive a little bit more into this topic of kind of patriotism in the United States and where it currently stands. But I will quote our current president by saying that, uh, you know, Americans can be summed up in one word. <laughs> so that, that that's one of those quotes that are going to be, you know, uh, engraved in stone and put out somewhere in the in the White House lawn, I'm sure. But we got a lot of topics to get to, so let, let's move on. Um, the first thing I want to start off, we're going to start off a little bit of a video here. So for context, our very own Justin Haskins and Jack McFerrin did a little digging and found some evidence of a pattern of meetings between BlackRock executives and various White House personnel. So this has caught the, the attention of uh, some in the media, one of the outlets being Dan Bongino's Unfiltered. So we have a about a minute clip here. Let's go ahead and play that, Andy. Back to the special edition of Unfiltered. Listen, I've warned you about this before. A clearer picture is now starting to emerge of the connections between the Biden White House and Wall Street powerhouse BlackRock. According to a new report, White House visitor logs show several BlackRock executives secretly meeting with top Biden officials. Huh? 
Though they don't like the Wall Street folks, right? Isn't that what they told us? Joining me now is biotech entrepreneur and Fox News contributor Vivek Ramaswamy. Vivek, you've been all over BlackRock, Larry Fink, uh, using their collective power of their clients' money to influence corporations. What do you think's going on with them in the White House? Is it this ESG environmental stuff? Well, look, this is crony capitalism in modern clothing, where what's happening is that government is using private actors, I believe including actors like BlackRock, to do through the back door what government cannot get done through the front door under the Constitution. And then they label it the ESG movement. They label it stakeholder capitalism. Can't pass the Green New Deal through Congress? No problem. Let's get the climate pledge signed by companies instead. Dan, this is the this is the game of the 21st century where government has deputized not just the administrative state, that was the 1980s problem, but now the private sector itself to do the work of big government from 40 years ago. That's what we see on the state on the stage. Oh, you are welcome, everybody. You are welcome. This is the the idea that we've been talking about for a while now on this podcast and uh, Stopping Socialism TV of this ESG and the insidious nature of ESG and the plans outlined in the Great Reset and all of that finally filtering down into the uh, the media at large. We've We've gotten into the popular lexicon of conservatives and all of that. And now... This plan of ESG and all of that, which was able to fly underneath the radar for so long, is nice and front and center on conservative minds. So this is the first big step, in my opinion. I mean, obviously, this has been in the in the the, the forefront of the conservative mind for a while. Uh, but seeing seeing them talk about this stuff on Fox News is fantastic. So for a little bit of uh, more context. I want to talk about this piece that was authored by Justin Haskins and Jack McFerrin. It was published in the Epic Times, uncovering the White House's secret meetings with BlackRock. So it uh, starts off, the article starts off saying, with more than a $10 trillion in assets under management, BlackRock is the wealthiest and most powerful investment management firm on Wall Street. Yet newly discovered information reveals that BlackRock's influence may extend well beyond the financial sphere all the way to the White House. Our investigation into the relationship between BlackRock officials and the White House shows that during the Biden administration's turn at the tiller, BlackRock, which currently controls more assets than any other investment group in America, has enjoyed unprecedented access to key administration figures and advisors to the president. These relationships rise serious ethical concerns that cannot be addressed without an in-depth inv investigation by the proper authorities. So um, if you really want like kind of an in-depth uh, explanation of how Justin kind of started pulling at this thread, we did a video on Stopping Socialism TV, just Justin and I did that. So he gets pretty in-depth into like why he started going down this rabbit hole. But basically what you need to know is that BlackRock, the biggest asset management firm, I think in the world, he says in America, I believe it's in the world. Maybe there's some China one that I'm forgetting about. Uh, big proponents of the Great Reset, ESG, big proponents of basically any scheme promoted by international elite types. So Justin started looking into the visitor logs of the White House and uh, found a name stuck out to him. Thomas Donilon caught his attention. So he uh, he looks up this Thomas Donilon, who's a chairman of BlackRock's Investment Institute, which is BlackRock's personal think tank dedicated to assessing geopolitical investment risk. So um, 
this Donilon family has connections just through and through the White House. It's pretty insane. But the, the idea, is, like the only thing that we can assume by this constant meetings and all of this is that BlackRock is getting access to the highest level of information that would give them massive edge in the markets for such a huge asset management firm like that. So, uh, Chris, what do you think is going on here? Is this just like a huge example of cronyism at its worst? What do you think? Yeah, so you said that uh, BlackRock is getting access to, uh, you know, to uh, special information that only the, you know, the administration, you know, like has at their fingertips. But I also think that it's the other side of that, too. BlackRock is lobbying, you know, directly to the president and to uh, people high up in the administration to get the administration to do what they want to do. So it's like a two way street here. Um, I mean, this is just, you know, crony capitalism just right in your face. It's so sad because uh, Joe Biden said that he was going to come in and be so transparent. And he has been the complete and utter opposite. You know, we're just, you know, nibbling, I think, at the edges of this. I think there's a lot more to come out. I think they're holding a lot back. Um, you know, I edited uh, both of those pieces. And I think that there is, you know, this is the tip of the iceberg. I think that there's going to be a lot more uh, that comes out in this story you know, in the, in the months to come. And I, I think it's, it's somewhat similar to like the Hunter Biden laptop story where it's just, you know, like piece by piece by piece, just drops and drops and drops. And I think the American people get what's going on here. This is just corruption at the highest levels. Yeah, Jim, I mean, uh, the, the piece here outlines a whole bunch of different stuff. Uh, it talks about kind of the far reaching connections of that Donilon family inside the Biden administration, the the types of Biden officials that took part in these meetings, the potential implications of this sort of access. Is this just par for the course, though, when it comes to the incestuous relationship between massive business and the White House? Jim's muted. Classic Jim. Hey, TM Willemsa, put a instead of a Jim rant t trademark, we should have an unmute yourself trademark, unmute too. Yourself. Get on that. Yep. Get on that. Yeah, <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, you know, remember, remember the good old days when uh, government and business were at odds with each other all the time, when when the left would look to government to regulate business because business was dangerous if it got out of control. Now, I mean, I, it was always kind of a myth, but now it, it is it is the, the worst of, of all worlds where you have the most powerful corporations in the world uh, cooperating with government to to achieve shared ends uh, there there's there's so where's the opposition to this it seems to be nowhere you know the people are the ones who are opposed to this but we are largely powerless right now you know educating yourself on these issues is very important uh having it talked about on fox news is great how about a how about a uh how about a segment on 60 minutes on this but not defending esg but mm -hmm. but exposing it for what it is which is which is pretty dangerous and it's a scam and it enriches uh, the elites and impoverishes the rest of us it makes our, our life less free it make it gives more power again to governments and corporations so you know uh, i know you and i uh uh, Donnie are watching uh, Westworld or you're trying to catch up to me. Westworld season four just started. And it's interesting because, you know, the as the series goes on, it really is about how the nexus of government 
and 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 this big company called Delos that basically controls the world working together to oppress all of the people. It's this dystopian future. And, you know, there's lots of dystopian fiction that talks about, you know, the the rise of corporations, usually like uh, like the Terminator, for instance. Right. You know, so it's a it's a corporation. It's a company, Skynet, that, that you know, events, uh, you know, becomes sentient in artificial intelligence and takes over the world and it's apocalypse and all that stuff. But in classic, you know, science fiction, it's always corporations acting alone that, um, you know, that impose some kind of tyranny over the people and the government seems to not be able to stop them. Now we live in an actual world in which government and big business are working together uh, to, to advance shared aims, companies to get richer and more powerful, governments to, to get richer and more powerful, actually, as well. So it works great together. And so there seems to be no way to push back on this. Again, educating ourselves on these issues, and it's a long education process, is very important. Resisting these sorts of schemes, which we're seeing happen in fits and starts all over the place, including, I mean, it's not exactly ESG, but it's related to it, the, the, the protests with the Dutch farmers, which we're going to talk about later. But uh, yeah, this this insidious connection between these between big business and government. And in fact, here in the United States, a great example of that, uh, you know, the First Amendment does not allow government to restrict your speech. So instead, the government threatens someone like Twitter or or Google or another big tech company that, hey, you know what, maybe we're going to start regulating you and pretty much ru uh, ruin your business plan. But if you silence the voices of people who oppose us in the government, in other words, right wing voices, people who are not on the left, if you if you suppress their speech, maybe we'll leave you alone. Uh, actually, in the law, if a private company is acting on the behalf of government, that is actually a violation of, mm. of free speech It's against the law. Nobody's ever going to enforce it. But that's the kind of world we live in now. Uh, this is why ESG needs to be opposed. We oppose it and you should oppose it, too. Hey, Donnie, uh, one of the wait, 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 Chris. Fact check. Very important fact check. Jim brought up Terminator. Uh, Cyberdyne was the name of the business. Skynet was artificial intelligence. Just an FYI. Okay. Go ahead, Chris. All right. <laughs> very important wow. that you pointed that, that out. That is, that Thank is. You. I take it very seriously. Go oh ahead, yeah, yeah. I was just going to say that uh, what what is particularly frustrating from my point of view about the BlackRock situation is that this is not Larry Fink's money. Most of BlackRock's assets under management are public pensions oh, and 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 our money. So it, it would be one thing if uh, Larry Fink, you know, was putting his own money in the line, had his own skin in the game, but he's not. He's actually using, uh, you know, our our money. So that that to me is just particularly uh, you know frustrating. The other thing, the other thing that I think is very important is this does not have to be a partisan issue. Like I know that a lot of the right. ESG is based around these things that are like uh, uh, they're like curated for the left. You know this uh, this try this crusade against climate change and environmental policy. That's the E and all of the social justice and whatever that's in the S and the G parts of ESG. But like this doesn't have to be like a partisan issue. This this is a uh, as as Jim said, this is like the nexus between corporations and government wielding their influence to each other to to pat each other on the back and align each other's pockets with money. Anybody left or right could be against that. And for people on the left, they might want to hear about uh, the conversations that are going on behind closed doors with these uh, World Economic Forum and Davos types, where they're out there trying to determine how to classify. Uh, warplanes and missile manufacturing companies and all of that, because there's a big push now to consider like 
like uh, weapons of war and all of that to be ESG assets because they help stabilize the world and all of that. So just imagine the uh, the idea of like the whole military industrial complex just multiplied by all this ESG garbage and cronyism. If that doesn't get somebody on the left to be like a little weary of this whole scheme, I don't know what will. Yeah, um, well, yeah. Can, let me just mention because I, I wrote this down in my notes because you and I talked about this yesterday. <laughs> so I just wanted to say it. You know, but so so ESG is all about being socially responsible and in favor of good governance and in environmental stewardship, right? That's what the ESG stands for. Exactly. How is it socially responsible to get, say, slave labor in China to manufacture your solar panels and the blades for the wind turbines? You know, how is it socially responsible to get the cobalt and other rare earth metals for the batteries from child labor in the Congo? How is it socially responsible at a feather in your environmental cap, uh, your environmental goodness cap, to have China rape the earth to mine for lithium and then produce batteries for factories, you know, in factories that are powered by coal so that we can put them in our cars and, and, and uh, you know, uh, say we're doing something for the environment? I mean, the, the, whole, the whole thing, you just have to ask yourself those questions and then you can understand, you can t convince anybody that ESG is a complete scam. Uh, that, that's exactly what it is, but because it's not good for the environment, it's not socially responsible, and it is not reflective of good governance. It's, it's the exact opposite of all three. And it's all based on subjective metrics and measurements. Like, how do you, uh, you know, they have certain scores that that you'll get ranked down depending on uh, your carbon footprint or your water usage. And then on the other side of the ESG, there's also metrics that uh, will punish you or reward you based on your, you know, uh, minority representation in your boardroom. Uh, how do those relate to each other? Is one worth five points and one worth one? I don't know. Who decides that? So it's well, all subjective. It's all to the whims of these these wannabe central planners. And they get to use this as a disguise to pick, hand pick their winners and losers of all of this. Yeah, it's, it's the biggest cronyous system that's ever been devised by man. Yeah, it's about control. I mean, I think that's the bottom line. It's about controlling uh, who gets access to capital and who doesn't. And yes. whether whether it's, you know, based on the environmental or the social or the governance like criteria, like you said, they're all subjective and it's just about uh, control. And Larry Fink wants to uh, exercise vast amounts of control over where uh, capital is allocated and yep. ESG allows him to do that. And I exactly. just... You know, yeah. it's 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 anti free market. It's anti capitalism, and it's it's you know just everything that you know that Darlin Stude opposes. If 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 you were to make if in fiction, if you were to call your villain Larry Fink, an editor <laughs> would scratch that out and say you got to come up with a better one than that. But yeah, you know, you're like Klaus Schwab, like nope, try again. No, Klaus Schwab, <laughs> yeah, try again. <laughs> yeah. All right, but I have him petting a cat like this on camera. Can that work? <laughs> but uh, the Actually, I'm going to really, uh, maybe it's this is a secret. I don't know if it's a secret, but the Harlow uh -oh. Institute is actually doing a lot of work behind the scenes to help stop this. Chris, you mentioned that, you know, Larry Fink and others, like it's not their money, it's our money. It's your money in a 401k. It's the it's the public pension systems, and what the Heartland Institute has been doing. We had a uh, we had a secret summit. Did we talk about this before, Donnie? I think we had a secret. Yeah, we had a secret summit. We had uh, uh, elected officials there. They wanted to learn more about ESG, and what you're seeing in in I think you're going to see more of in a lot of states is that for what they can control, they will pass a law that says if uh, we will not be putting our money into you know into into investments in which they use ESG as the standard instead of doing their fiduciary duty which is to make money for you know for, you know to make money off of the money that we give you so if if more states 
take a stand and say, yeah, our public, our enormous, you know, $50 billion public pension, uh, we're, we're going to take it out from, we're going to take it away from you because you're, you're using ESG. You're, you're, you've, 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 you know, violated your fiduciary duty and you're trying to socially engineer the world through ESG. So we'll take our money away from you. If we see more of that happening, uh, then ESG doesn't become as profitable anymore. And then ESG is left, is, you know, left behind and we move forward like, you know, the normal world that we were before. Yeah. Well, and, the, but, and, the, and the reason why that meeting was possible is because now this topic of ESG is forefront in the national conversation, at least on the conservative side of things. So yep. like I said, you know, and again, that Don, Dan Bongino clip is a uh, is an example of this just finally getting out into the into the mass media and all of that. And it's it's yielding some uh, some good fruits there. Well, and, and Donnie, the the entire point of a company is to offer goods and services at the you know best value at the highest you know quality at the best right. value to their customers they are not supposed to be involved in these social justice uh objectives you know that's what that's what private charities are for that's what the church is for and that's even what some government you know is supposed to be doing but but these giant companies whether it's caterpillar or coca-cola or you know name name whichever one you want they are supposed to be singularly focused on offering goods and services at the best possible price to the highest quality degree. And, you know, once the, uh, these giant companies abandon, you know, that objective, then the question is, what do they exist for? Oh, they exist to ensure that they get their, you know, their government, uh, you know, uh, funding, you know, and, mm -hmm. and that, that, that to me is going to just totally skew the market. And oh, it's yeah crush innovation is going to crush entrepreneurship and it's just going to you know what it's going to lower all all of our standard of living yeah and crush competition too it's that it's too, uh man. it's 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 a they make it seem like no this is just a different flavor of capitalism this is stakeholder capitalism compared to shareholder capitalism no. in reality they're polar opposites this is a controlled system compared to an uncontrolled system that's only dictated by competition and all of that so we've talked about ESG a lot on this podcast, uh, how it's the machinery that can serve to centrally plan and control the economy at the whims of these global elites and, and, and international organization types. We've talked about how it could be used to punish and reward businesses, depending on how uh, their behaviors and their willingness to play the game. We've also talked about how ESG is designed to push an agenda, whether it's in regards to climate change or other social justice stuff. But today we have a couple of solid pieces of evidence that ESG is exactly as powerful as we've warned and exactly as devastating as we've feared. So, Jim, he's already brought up the uh, what's going on in the Netherlands. So uh, let, let's talk about that. So in the Netherlands, this is a story that's been going around a little bit. Surely everyone's uh, watching this podcast has heard a little. But in June, the government of the Netherlands announced plans to reduce the country's nitrogen pollution by something like 70% by the year 2030. And 2030, which sounds like a far distant uh, year for all of us that have grown up, uh, you know, in the early 2000s and stuff, but it's only uh, eight years away, seven and a half years away. This plan is to make the country compliant with European Union sustainability mandates. But such drastic cuts in such a short amount of time is literally impossible for many of the country's farmers. So many of the country's farmers are being forced to like literally kill some of their livestock, reduce the size of their crop, or just stop working altogether. And this is resulting in two major outcomes that I can identify. 
Uh, one is that the Netherlands is the second largest agricultural exporter in the world, second only to the United States. So kneecapping the country's agricultural sector is going to have global repercussions in terms of food supply. And then the other thing is that because of the livelihoods of farmers across the country being ruined by this government mandate, farmers are basically in full-on revolt in the streets. And if you are watching the video version of this podcast, you will see a video of these farmers and their tractors driving down the streets. Uh, there's a lot of uh, stories of them parking out in front of government buildings uh dumping like manure on the ground in front of in front of the in front of the doorways and all types of different stuff so uh jim thoughts mm. on this well again it, it's encouraging to see this i mean this is um you know the reason esg is is so popular among uh you know world governments is because Despite you know they spent they've spent decades the 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 United Nations and the EU have spent decades just on climate trying to get us plebes us ordinary people to do what we're told to stop driving so much to not have two cars don't fly everywhere uh, and we just won't listen you know because we're free and so ESG makes it so that uh, you know it gives it gives the government as if they needed it more leverage and more muscle in order to impose this agenda. And again, these these companies are fine with it as long as they end up making money in the end. Uh, you know, one of the things they do in ESG, Donnie, and I know you guys, uh, you and Justin have talked about this in the past, is that you get a terrible ESG score if you invest in fossil fuels, if you invest in a coal company or a natural gas company. Uh, you know, that's that's not good. You shouldn't be able to invest in those companies. So it's kind of taking, you know, the whole uh, it was popular on college campuses, you know, the divestment movement. Like, you know, we're going to take our money out of these these dirty companies, these things we don't like. Uh, you know, ESG makes that um, it, it kind of flips it around. It makes it virtuous and profitable because the system is rigged in order to to invest in these in these agendas that the left really wants to push on the people to help control us. And so it is really encouraging. I mean, this this uh, protest in these growing protests in the Netherlands, uh, you know, it, it should remind people here on the screen. We see people marching down the street very peacefully. There have been some violent clashes, but it's nothing like the BLM Antifa uh, riots that we had in this country in 2020. For instance, you know, there aren't any cities burning down for <laughs> right now. Um, somebody did set a fire in front of a building, but, you know, uh, that's small potatoes. Uh, I love and so. You know, it's a bad idea to piss off farmers, by the way. Uh, <laughs> not only do they tend to have firearms at, at, at home, I don't know if they do in the Netherlands. I don't know what their gun laws are like, but they have other ways to get at you. I mean, one of the clips that we have here is they're spraying liquid manure all over the front of a, of a government building. I think it was a city hall. Uh, that's going to leave a mark, as they say. It's going to leave a smell for weeks. <laughs> uh, it's, it's And then, you know, then the people dumping manure and, uh, uh, you know, fertilizer and grain on, on the lawns of, of uh, the government officials that are telling them that they can't farm anymore. Uh, I mean, this, this is a, again, they are being told that they have to reduce their use of nitrogen and we have to get, you have to reduce our use of methane, basically arbitrary limits on agriculture in one of the most important agricultural countries on earth, not just in Europe. Uh, and if they, if it's, if this is actually carried out, the livestock industry in the Netherlands will be pretty much wiped out, gone. Uh, we, we, we're living in a world right now where we're going to have food shortages. It's coming. You know, the, the bumper wheat crop that we always get as a globe from Ukraine is not coming this year, guys. And so the, what do we do? 
we uh, we tell the farmers to stop farming because it's going to hurt the environment. There's no proof of this. There's no there's no argument about it. There's no debate about it. It's just handed down on high. Uh, your whole way of life is going away. It is great that we see this in the streets. I think yeah. if these guys keep pushing, we're going to see more of these types of protests all over the world and hopefully here in the United States, too, if it gets too bad. There was a lady with a sign just at the end of that clip. Yeah, that I saw the Great Reset. Yeah. Great uh, Reset was cut out and it said awakening. Yeah. Um, this is all based on World Economic Forum principles of ESG. Uh, if you watch the panels at the annual Davos meeting, you'll see them talk very <laughs> openly about some of this stuff. There was a panel this year that was titled Redefining Food Systems with Emerging Technologies. And during this panel, experts bemoaned the fact that farmers across the world were focusing too much on just pro producing food instead of you know, what the greater minds at Davos think that they should be prioritizing, which is the environmental impact and the and the uh, the equality and, and inclusiveness in farming and all of that. The World Economic Forum website has a number of articles talking about the need to create a more inclusive and sustainable global food system and how agriculture systems around the world have to become CO2 neutral in the near future. Uh, Chris, this doesn't seem very sustainable to me. What do you think? It's not sustainable at all. You know, th there are three things that a nation needs to survive. They need food, water, and energy. ESG takes a wrecking ball to food and energy. And we've been, and we've seen in the United States as well, we're having food shortages. Crops are not, you know, are, are not you know, being uh, harvested nearly the rate that they were a couple of years ago. And also we have, you know, energy prices that are just completely out of control. And a lot of this is because the ESG, uh, you know, mindset has basically told companies don't invest in energy, especially fossil fuel, uh, you know, related energy projects. And a lot of the, you know, the, the, the food processing, which, you know, includes fossil fuels, they're, they're, you know, stifling it. And they're saying, right. you know what? No, don't, don't go and, uh, you know, buy, buy uh, meat, you know, go and buy your, your, your fake meat or just, you know, whatever. And, you know, this is going to have real bad ramifications for people when, you know, when they're starving and when there is going to be bread lines and when there's going to be food riots across Africa, across the Middle East, across these countries that rely on the United States, the Netherlands and these other, uh, you know, agriculture producing countries for yeah. their for their you know their their basic you know food necessities so this is just once again i think an example of these globalists just completely out of touch with reality and just not even understanding hey a society to function at a basic level needs food and energy yeah and these <laughs> I mean, uh, come on guys the these movements also tend to spread uh how long ago was it where we had the yellow vest riots going on in france because of like a 15 cent increase in their gas tax or something yeah. we have a comment here if i can click it talking about how there's farmer protests now in italy i did see that this morning i haven't looked into it to see exactly what's going on but surely they're inspired by what they're seeing with the dutch um, so uh, we'll definitely be keeping an eye on some of that. Another example comes from Sri Lanka. So in an effort to shift their agricultural sector in Sri Lanka towards a more organic one, the government banned the use of chemical fertilizer, basically overnight and with no warning to the country's farmers. 
So reading from a Daily Caller article, it says the move was part of Sri Lanka's effort to pursue environmental, social and governance goals, ESG. The country signed on to a green finance taxonomy with the International Finance Corporation in May that included a commitment to organic fertilizers. So the International Finance Corporation is one of these big international organizations. It's the sister organization to the World Bank, I believe. And they also team up with the World Economic Forum for various projects. They're all all running the same guild over there. So what was the effect in Sri Lanka? Well, organic vegetables grew by the truckload. Everyone ate and got rich. And Mother Nature thanked the farmers for being so kind to her soil. Nah, I'm just kidding. The crop (laughs) production actually decreased by 40 to 50%, according to UN estimates. The country had been uh, started begging neighboring countries for food. And the economy of the country, which was already in a precarious position, basically collapsed. So uh, I joke, Jim, about like, you know, the the positive effects that uh, that would have yielded from making a move like this. But is that what these people think was going to happen? Like, do they honestly think that like, oh, yeah, we'll just shift away from this uh, fertilizer and all of that and everything will be great. We'll all be, uh, you know, even even more well off than we were before. Is that what they think, Jim? You know, no, I actually don't think that uh, I, I used to think, you know, it was easy to think that, you know, these people are just naive, like. Uh, you know, we we need to go back. We hear it here in the United States too. We need to have more sustainable farming. Well, what do they mean by that? Well, organic farming, like it's some sort of magic. You know, it's just it's just growing things in poop, and it's not very uh, efficient. You can't have you know GMOs are actually, you know, they used to call them Franken food. It's just all that is 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 our plants that are, are that are made resistant to the things that will kill them, so that they will grow into food, so we can eat them, so that we can stay alive. But I'm starting to think, you know, I, we call it a climate cult. It, it's a doomsday cult, really. I mean, look, somebody in, actually in the comments mentioned the the uh, the Georgia Stones. Uh, what is that? What they're called? <laughs> Georgia you know, Guidestones. Georgia Guidestones. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and and that was some that was some kind of you know hippie Stonehenge crap that somebody put up in the like I think 1980 or late 70s, early 80s. And it said one of the inscriptions there on it, it, the purpose of the Georgia Guidestones was to lead the path for the future of humanity. And this is how we should organize society. And this is the ideal situation for humanity. Among the things that were ideal for the earth and the human population to be in balance was for there to only be 500 million people on earth. Right. At the time the guide, the, the Georgia Guidestones were put up, there were 4.3 billion people on earth. And we are very soon going to eclipse 8 billion people on earth. Uh, it probably happened this year or very early next year. Uh, if, if your ideal Earth has 500 million people, say it only has 5 billion people on it, and you really think that the Earth cannot sustain, we, we cannot sustain life on this planet, not just human life, but all life on this planet, if the human population continues to grow, what do you think happens after that? I mean, if you're serious about that, that if, if you're serious about that in your death cult, you need to get rid of people. And how do you get rid of people? You could starve them. You could force them to not use modern technology to grow enough food for everybody and and a growing population. That's one way you can do it. Uh, I think you have to start taking these people actually seriously and stop trying to to impart noble motives onto what's happening here. They don't care that people in Sri Lanka are starving. They don't care that the entire economy in that country, which used to be, you know, relatively wealthy, or at least stable, tourism was a big was a big part of their economy. 
they their entire co economy has completely collapsed. People can't visit there because there's nothing to eat. Now you have to start to think, you know, it's not just oopsies. I'm sorry. I guess we'll let you go back to regular farming. No. Has that happened? Are they going to do that? Not, not, I haven't seen anything so far. We're just going to have to live this way, guys. That's just the way it is. That's the only way to save the earth. It's time to start to take these people seriously because that mindset is evil and it needs to be opposed. Yeah, I, I just wonder why like Sri Lanka signed on to this. I, I can only imagine that they were like promised some additional funding or some international support if they took if they went down this route. I'd have to look into it a little bit further, but that's my suspicion. In that article, it also talks about the inflation in Sri Lanka after this terrible, terrible uh, experiment and how it stands at 54.6% in June, according to Trading Economics, with food prices rising 80% and transportation rising 128% since May. Writers report it. Uh, half a million people have sunk into poverty as early as 2022. The Guardian reported that. So along with food shortages, the country is also facing severe energy shortages. It says the Sri Lankan government restricted supplies and activities to only those deemed essential on June 28th in the face of fuel shortages until new shipments arrive in two weeks, according to CNN. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Restricted to only those deemed essential. Hmm. <laughs> it's almost like they're using the COVID playbook to deal with energy shortages. If only somebody could pre have predicted that that would happen. <laughs> I swear I've been saying that since the days of COVID, that they were going to do the same thing when it came to climate change and all of this. And there we go. The first example happening in Sri Lanka right now. Uh, Chris, do you have any final thoughts on this? Uh, I do have two other kind of quicker things I want to get to. So I want to save some time. But if you have anything, go for it. Yeah, sadly, I think this is just the beginning. I think this is going to get much worse before it gets better. Jim, you looked like you were going to say something. I was. Thank you. I have one more thing. I know we have other topics we want to get to, but you know, it's like people ask, you know, are they are they really not aware that this whole net zero by twenty thirty or twenty fifty or whatever is not workable? I mean, do they really not know? That even trying to get to all renewables, mostly wind, has has been tried on a relatively small scale in Germany, and it was an immediate disaster. Do you think these people don't know that? You think they can't see that? You know, right now, people in rich, developed Western countries are not going on vacations or spending things that make spending things on uh, spending money on things that make them happy because of higher energy prices and higher food prices. And this is just the beginning of this. It's going to get worse. So you know, you have to start to, to start to realize. This starts to sound like a plan. This is the plan. When when you see the disasters that are unfolding because of decisions made by governments who want to control you and they don't reverse course, it's the plan, right? <laughs> and if there are people that are going to die in Sri Lanka of starvation, well, you know, like Drago said in Rocky Four, you know, if they die, they die. You know, right. that's it. Right. And if another, you know, two billion people have to have to die so that the remaining five billion could live. Well, so be it. Uh, you know, the, this is this is evil <laughs> what's going on here. And that's why you see people out on the streets. We're going to see we're actually going to see there's going to be massive resistance to this kind of stuff. As like you said, it's growing in Italy. It's happening in, in the Netherlands right now. These governments have to submit to the will of the people. And if they don't, they are tyranny. It's tyranny, plain and simple. And so we're going to see whether the Dutch are going to actually stand firm and annihilate the livelihoods of all the farmers. 
We'll see. I, I I think they have to capitulate. And if they don't, that is even worse news. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a very interesting story and surely it's only going to grow from here. So we'll definitely keep an eye on it. Uh, a couple of other things that I wanted to get to one of them, I was thinking about dedicating a lot more time to, but this, all this stuff going on in the Netherlands kind of took the center stage in my opinion. Uh, this is out of the European union. The uh, I'm reading from an article from Reuters here. It says the European Parliament on Wednesday backed an EU rules labeling investments in gas and nuclear power plants as climate friendly, throwing out an attempt to block the law that has exposed deep rifts between countries over how to fight climate change. The new rules will add gas and nuclear power plants to the EU, uh, the, the, the European Union taxonomy rule book. Uh, for 2023, enabling investors to label and market investments in them as green. Uh, so people that like to stay warm in the winter and like to stay cool in the summer are rejoicing in this decision. Others, like Greta Thunberg, not so much. So the other day, the day before this was up to vote, Greta tweeted, Tomorrow, the European Parliament will decide whether fossil gas and nuclear will be considered sustainable in blah, the blah, EU. Blah, 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 <laughs> In the EU taxonomy. But no amount of lobbyism and greenwashing will ever make it green. We desperately need real renewable energy, not false solutions. Hashtag not my taxonomy. So, uh, Jim, I mean, what what, uh, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, we've been talking about uh, nuclear power as being green yeah. for a long time. If they really want to be serious about fighting climate change, it's ridiculous that they're not turning to nuclear power. And and I know that it's like it is still a bit of a shame that the European Union is even in the position to be able to designate which ones are good and which ones are bad energies. But, I mean, we're talking baby steps. This has got to be a one in the right direction, right? Well, it's tied into ESG, isn't it? So that they can invest in in natural gas, so that they can make money, because they're going to need natural gas to survive in Europe. <laughs> right. To, to I mean, literally to survive. I mean, the idea uh, that you can go to all wind again. We mentioned Germany. We've talked about this on on previous podcasts in much more detail. But uh, you know, they they decided you know we're going to get actually they had nuclear power and they got rid of them all after Fukushima, thinking that there's going to be a tsunami that's going to knock. I don't know. It's it's nuts. <laughs> the leftist the leftist environmental nut jobs are nuts. That's why they think this way but they went to all wind and then uh energy prices skyrocketed they were brownouts so they couldn't sustain it so now they're going back to coal instead of even natural gas but the idea that natural gas is now a green energy and you have to include nuclear now as a green energy good news guys the united states is one of the greenest economies on earth <laughs> because we get 77 percent of our energy in this country is generated by either natural gas, nuclear, or so-called renewables. So, uh, you know, you. yeah, well, uh, yeah, suck it. Too bad. <laughs> United States rules. We have 77% green energy. And in fact, uh, you know, the, we got out of the Paris Climate Accord, but actually beat all of our European uh, peers in reducing carbon dioxide emissions. If you care about that, you shouldn't. I don't care about it. But by reducing our carbon dioxide emissions, why? Because we were converting coal plants to natural gas because natural gas was cheaper, more efficient and better. Uh, so, yeah, it is actually a greener energy uh, and it's it's absolutely vital to the survival of the world. And we're probably about, I don't know, at least 500 years from ever running out of it. So, uh, you know, yay. Go, go EU. I know it's just a, a scam to make money, but uh, if it makes Greta and the other eco uh, nutjobs angry that natural gas is called green and nuclear is called green, I'm all for it. 
you know, I, I, think it's, you. I think it's such a shame that the Soviet Union had to like sully the name of nuclear power so horribly with the Chernobyl incident and everything that's uh, caused from that, which scared all of these, uh, you know, all countries across the world for decades to not invest more money into nuclear power or anything or even pursue the innovations that could have taken us into even better directions when it comes to nuclear power. So now we're like sitting here with nuclear power. That's like four decades behind in terms of innovation that where we could have been if it wasn't for the Soviet Union. Yeah, we, we've, we've, we've only had six nuclear reactors come online in the United States since 1990. Six. Right. That's ridiculous. It should be 600, you know? Jeez. Uh, uh, Chris, do you have any thoughts on this? I, I'm kind of wondering if eventually, given enough uh, proof that wind and solar are just terrible at generating electricity in an efficient way, in an environmentally friendly way even, that they're going to eventually have to embrace nuclear. They're going to have to. What do you think about that? Uh, geez, I don't think that they would have to. I think that there is a lot of money to be made among the Democratic donor class in these uh, green, you know, these green energies, whether it's uh, wind turbines or uh, you know solar fields. So I think that the reason why they are pushing this, or at least one of the primary reasons is because they want to make money off of it. I think it's literally as simple as that. Well, I'm what do you sure think about this decision though? Do you think that this is just because they're stuck in such a hard spot? This is like a desperation move well, and it's just well, temporary? I, I think, well, I think, I think a lot of that is predicated on the fact that they do not want to buy uh, natural gas from Russia because of the Ukraine conflict. So they're now they're saying, mm. wait a second, we were going to be dependent upon Russia, but now Russia, you know, is is not looking like a very uh, likely, uh, you know, uh, provider. So what are we going to do? And now they're saying, OK, well, at the very least, we can rebuild some of our, uh, you know, our natural gas infrastructure and then uh, try to, uh, you know, re-up some of the nuclear power plants. But I do not think that this would be happening had it not been for, for you know, the Ukraine conflict. Yeah. But I also I also think that this is... In some ways, this is inevitable because the 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 people of Europe and the people of America are are going to you know eventually make it very clear that hey we we want you know this amount of power to you know supply to run our lives and right. if you can't if you can't provide it well then we're like someone or or you know a, a party who will provide it and I think that you know the hmm. Biden administration I think the, the the, one of the one of the undoings of the Biden administration is the fact that American people are so fed up with the cost of gasoline and the fact that Joe Biden ran on this. He said, if you like me, I will ban fossil fuels. And I think that the American people are starting to get a hint of what that actually would look like, you know, in, and it's only been, you know, 18 months, you know, into this, uh, this grand transition, as he likes to call it. Right. But, but I think that it, it, it is proving itself to be an utter failure. And I think that in Europe and in America and in places all across the world, uh, the voters are going to, are going to respond by saying, no, actually we don't want this. The, the question is, will the, uh, people in power allow them to, you know, have their way? Well, and just a, a little bit of insight into just um, how that vote went in the European Union over this thing, because, you know, you're looking at this in the context of uh, all the energy disruption that's going on over there, far worse than how it's affecting us here in the United States. I mean, I've seen some numbers talking about uh, like the doubling of energy prices in many parts of the European Union. I've seen some 
some estimates suggesting that like in, in Germany's energy uh, uh, going up like 700% in the last couple of months because of everything that's going on. So mm -hmm. even with all that energy disruption, when we put this on the table of like, well, maybe we should start considering nuclear green, it's still passed at like a, a almost like a 50-50 split. So it wasn't like this unanimous like decision to to do this or anything like that. It was still like, you know, pulling them with their nails dug into the into the ground to like, you know, we got to do this. We have to do this. Uh, Jim, one very last quick topic that we're going to try to fit in the last one minute of this podcast <laughs> is uh, in the education realm. So this is something we've been talking a little bit uh, about in, in Europe for the majority of this podcast. This takes place in America. Just a week or so ago, the Arizona governor signed into law one of the, if not the, largest school choice bills ever. And it, uh, the new law would grant empowerment scholarship accounts or education savings accounts to all students from kindergarten to 12th grade. Reading from an article from the Heartland Daily News says empowerment scholarship accounts empower families with the freedom and flexibility to customize their child's education. Arizona families can currently use ESAs to pay for private school tuition, tutoring, textbooks, homeschool curriculums, online courses, educational therapy, and more. The, the ESAs are funded with 90% of the state portion of Arizona's per pupil funding, including the additional funds for students with special needs. So Jim, I know we don't focus a whole lot of attention on education policy on this podcast, but uh, this seems like a pretty big deal, huh? Yeah, we should. We should. Uh, this 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 could actually be the beginning of a revolution uh, in the education in this country. You know, it's state by state. It's it's one it's one uh, ESA program, but it's a universal education savings account program. Uh, it, it, there's so much good that can come from destroying the government monopoly over educating our children. Uh, parents basically just hand their kids over to the state uh, to, you know, at least half raise them uh, from preschool until they're, they're, until they're an adult. Uh, this gives parents in Arizona the power to take control over the education of their, of their children. And why it's so good, you know, if, if there's a few good things that have come out of the COVID and the lockdowns. One is that you can pull up into a restaurant uh, after ordering on an app and they'll bring the food to you, which is nice. <laughs> you don't have to go inside. I like that that's, that's sustained itself. But we also, another good thing is that parents got a chance to see inside the public school system and how their kids were being not taught, but indoctrinated and how much time was being wasted with this indoctrination instead of teaching their kids the basics on how to, you know, read, write, arithmetic, all of that stuff. Uh, and so so many more parents now are taking control of of uh, of their kids' education. They're actually more invested now, and they want them out of these out of these public schools. A lot of public schools are actually having attendance uh, problems. You know, <laughs> yeah, the 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 populations of their schools are going down uh, for various reasons. But one of them is that parents are taking their kids out. So if this kind of idea spreads, that the money should follow the student or the family and not the, go to the school and to the teachers, that could be a revolutionary idea that will ultimately, finally, destroy the government monopoly run by the teachers unions to educate our kids. Yeah. And, you know, this this idea will catch on, uh, assuming that it's successful and that it's a popular idea, which we can assume it will be based on, I believe it is Arizona's past experience with this because they do have an ESA program. And it's like one of like the only school choice programs that has like a 100 percent like approval rating of the people that are involved in it or something, something crazy like that. And then also Arizona uh, in, with its current makeup, uh, including like 
whatever version of ESA that they do have. It's only limited to a certain amount of students or something like that. But they have like record highs or they're in the upper portion of like the NAEP scores, National Education Assessment, whatever that acronym stands for scores. So we can assume that this is going to continue that progress. Uh, it's going to continue to be popular amongst the, the citizens of the state. It's going to continue to yield better results in terms of education and all of that. And hopefully other states will see that, realize the implications of it, and uh, maybe pass some similar legislation. Chris, I'll give you a final word on this topic and the podcast in general before we wrap it up for the week. Yeah, I think the uh, Arizona uh, Universal School Choice Law is a possible game changer. And uh, Donnie, just you know, you mentioned that it that it's school choice is popular. School choice is overwhelmingly popular. It's overwhelmingly popular, especially among Democrats, among Black parents, among Hispanic parents, because they are the ones who have children stuck in these underperforming, terrible schools. I was a public school uh, school teacher for many years. I did some of my student teaching in uh, downtown Chicago schools, and I'm telling you, those there's not any learning going on in those schools. And I think that these people would benefit immensely from the fundamental freedom to say, "I want to pick where my kid goes to school," and right. that that should be, you know, the 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 default. That should be the standard. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Uh, all right. Fantastic, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this uh, very important episode of In the Tank podcast. Join us every Thursday at noon Central Time live to join the conversation. Leave your comments and suggest uh, not suggestions, your questions and comments. Maybe we'll show your comments on the screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. If you like our show, please subscribe, write a review for us, leave a comment, hit that like button, share this content, all things that will help show this content, put it in front of more eyes, break through those big tech algorithms that prevent content like this from being seen by more people. If you would like, you can follow us at In The Tank Pod on Twitter. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, feel free to email us at inthetankpodcast at gmail.com. Jim Likely, where can the fine people find you? At Jay Lakely on Twitter, at Heartland Inst on Twitter, and always visit heartland.org. Fantastic. Chris, what do you have to pitch today? Stopinsocialism.com and heartland.org, as always. Fantastic. Thank you all for tuning in. We will talk to you next week.